Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Welcome to the wonderful world of wine, everybody. Kim and I here every week on Franklin Radio, WFPR 102.9 FM. How are you, Kim? I'm well. How are you, Mark? Everything is great. Good. It's getting a little cool out, so yeah. uh, we got to change to some more heavy reds now. <laughs> That's right. It's red wine season. Beefing up the wine cellar. Getting I have it to say goodbye to my say goodbye to my rosés for a while, and uh, I've been really into um, dolcettos and barberas. You know some of those nice dry northern italian reds go. that are just you know great with stew and soups and things like that so you know it's nice to be uh diving into my red wines again i knew i liked you kim <laughs> i knew it. i knew you hit the italian stuff that's right anyway our first article today we want to talk to our listeners about is the six wine styles you need to know right now and this was a liquor.com article and interesting kim one of the things the wine styles they say we need to know right now is actually a cider so i don't know if we want to talk about that one or not and the other um, ones are fruit wine so well that's technically <laughs> like, wine so yeah, well, so maybe five things we want to we want to hit on uh -huh. but the the first trend or style they're saying you need to know right now is alpine wines and we've mentioned a few times uh, some uh, mountain wines right kim i think mm -hmm. the biggest things are probably French Alpine wines that are, I think are always tasting fabulous. What, what did you think, Ken? Yeah. You know, when I think Alpine wines, um, I actually think more Austria and Switzerland before yeah. I think of France. But it's true that the northern, some of those northern and um, eastern regions of France, like the Jura, definitely mountainy wines. They're just, they're hard to find. And I, that is one of my issues with this article is that so many of these styles or these types of wine because they they're not brand new but because they're just sort of entering people's radars right now that they're um they're not the easiest things to find on the market right and I, and I would, trend I would say as them. as someone who has to track down some of these wines every once in a while for classes you know the first one that they mention is a sevenin which is a different grape than sauvignon but can get confusing is hard to find is really not an easy wine to track down. Yeah. And they and they didn't mention Jacoa, which I love from Savoie in in uh, France. Yeah, and there are, I mean Ma this was this was a white wine that they were talking about, but there are some really cool reds from up right. in this area as well. So and we mentioned in the past the Swiss wines are like impossible to find, but they, yeah. they did mention uh, Austria, which I mean, you can find some really nice Austrian red wines around. Mm -hmm. So, I, but the, as you said, Kim, saying they're trends and then hard to find, I don't know how they could be trends if you can't even can't <laughs> you locate can, them. If you right? can't order them anywhere. <laughs> but they did mention also chillable reds wines you need to know right now. And what would you consider a chillable red? Kim, yeah, I actually trendy. think that this this was something that was getting a little bit of buzz over the summer because I think a a lighter red that you can put a little bit of a chill on is something that is really summer appropriate. 
and a nice way to be able to have a glass of red wine in the summer if you are a red wine drinker or if you just tend to like a variety of different things like I do. So the particular styles that are excellent with a little bit of a chill on them, the classic one is Beaujolais. And we're actually moving into Beaujolais season right now as we approach um, you know, later fall. I know it's really just the beginning of fall middle of fall now. But, um, you know, Beaujolais is one of those wines that's traditionally thought of for Thanksgiving dinner. But then there are things like Cabernet Franc, which I think is a great variety, that especially from the Finger Lakes is getting better and better. And then other kind of off the beaten path things like Blaufrankisch, which I really love to say. And it kind of goes back to those Alpine wines, right? Because a lot yeah. of those reds up in those high altitude, cooler growing climates tend to be the lighter bodied wines. And those are the styles that could benefit from a little bit of a chill on them. So, you know, think your Pinot Noirs, your Gamays, your Blaufrankisch, Cab Francs, and some of the other kind of newer grape varieties that are coming on the market, whether they're hybrids or whatnot. We've got them, some new things on the horizon. The Beaujolais thing was interesting saying trending when for the past few years, I think we mentioned this before, that I've seen it kind of fading out, especially like the Beaujolais Nouveau season. So we'll mm-hmm. see this year if, if it kicks in again come Thanksgiving, if it's yeah. trending back or not. And you also mentioned those cool climate reds. I think like things like uh, Scavia from, from Italy oh, is another yeah. perfect wine you can uh, chill, totally. a nice chill too. So there was a lot of those cool climate reds out yeah. there that yeah, fit into this are. category. There are. Next and I know that the uh, yep. the organizations in Beaujolais that specifically try to get out the word and market the Beaujolais cruise, the 10 better villages of Beaujolais, they've really been, it seems like they've been promoting their butts off about trying to get people to understand and drink the crew Beaujolais. So maybe that will have an impact on what we see in the market and if people have more of an interest in Beaujolais. So uh, I keep trying to fool my husband because he doesn't like Beaujolais. And I keep bringing crew Beaujolais home and say, try this. Tell me if you like it. He can always tell. <laughs> yeah. He's, well, if people don't like the Nouveau or they think they're going to think that all that crew stuff is in that level and it's totally yeah, and different not. experience, which yeah. you're trying to teach your husband there. So. And some of them are really funky. So I, yeah. I think that they're, you know, it's a style of wine in a region that has more variety than people think it does. So next week, talk about, you mentioned really early about fruit-based wines and they're saying you should get to know those right now. And in our area, New England, now is the time where I think you should really experiment with some of these fruit wines. And mm-hmm. I know me personally, you're coming towards like Thanksgiving, you get the blueberry, the cranberry wines, those really start to kick in because it's yeah. more of that festive type wine. And know. a cool fact for, you know, those of us in Massachusetts and in, in New England, still apple orchard, apple picking season. And a lot of these apple orchards also will grow other things. So I was recently at an apple orchard for you pick with my family and they had all of these fruit wines. There must have been two dozen different types of fruit wine at this particular place that we went to. So I bought myself a bottle of, I think, raspberry peach or something, but there were all of these blackberry, boysenberry, cherry, like everything that you could think of. Was it Neshoba? No, it wasn't. It was in Northern Massachusetts. And I will come up with a name at some point. I know Neshoba. 
But it was north. Of, it was north of like Boston. That. It was sort of in the Gloucester area. I like when they have a variety, like, you know, the apple and the yeah. the blueberry. And then they have so many like Neshoba has a dry blueberry. They have a sweet blueberry. Mm-hmm. And you don't see those on many retail shelves or, you know, you're not going to no. find them in restaurants. Maybe lists, one or two, you know, it's yeah. definitely so these a are local more like experience. Harder to get. And you usually have to go to the source. Um, yeah. But I haven't seen too many that are grape and other fruit blended together. I think there yeah. are a few out there. And that's what this uh, article is specifically talking about is this as a mix between wine grapes and fruit. And I can't say that I've seen too, too many of them, although I know Neshoba does do some. Uh, does Manischewitz make, is there like blackberry? Is that a mix of blackberry and Concord grape? I think so. I'm trying to think. I think that's the only one I've ever experienced. That's a blend of yeah. fruit and you know grapes and it's kind of strange. Yeah, they so, definitely yeah. do. Then they mentioned Kim Petnat, which we talked the whole, I think, show about that style of wine. And I still don't see this as a style you need to know right now, because I think many people probably, number one, probably won't understand it and, and they won't like it. It's not just mm. a style that's anyone can just really it's a little funky yeah Yeah, a lot of pet nets are a little funky i I think the thing holding it back is part of its nature is its variability so because it has so much less intervention as far as a sparkling wine goes because usually sparkling wines there's such attention to detail and they have to really pay close attention to making sure that you know the pressure in the bottle is exact or else you're going to have, you know, explosions. Petnat isn't that way. It's usually just kind of left to do its own thing. So you might get a really bubbly bottle. You might get a, a bottle that doesn't have a whole lot of sparkle to it. The flavors might be a little off in some of them, but that's kind of the point of it. And I think that's hard to make a product that you want to market in such a way that people can feel confident buying a bottle and then buying another bottle and then buying another bottle. I, I think that you know, it's the kind of thing that if people aren't sure what they're going to be getting, they may not go back and buy it that second or third time. Yeah, the variation is just you could get one bottle tastes totally different than the other bottle. So I think that kind of hurts their reputation for a consistent product. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of where you were going with yeah. it too? Yeah. yeah. And a lot of it tends to have sediment in the bottom too. And I just I don't feel like Americans are, are, are big on um, cloudy wine, honestly. Right. What about the next style? They said you need to know, Kim. Piquette. This is the. Um, I'm in the same kind of camp with uh, with, with Piquette as I am with Petnat. On and honestly, I've never seen Piquette. Me. Either. I would probably drink it <laughs> if I could find some of it, because it's lighter in alcohol, it's lighter in flavor. It seems like it would be great for summertime because you know it's a little fizzy. It's great chilled down. Like I totally could see myself crushing quite a bit of Petnat. I mean, um, of Piquette. And I just, I don't know where anyone is buying any of it. So to be able to say that this is a trend, I think in order for something to be a trend, you need to have enough on the market that that the consumer actually knows what the heck it is. In this case, I think it's something you need to know is out there in the wine world, but I don't think you really need to stock it up or serve it to your guests, that type of thing. Yeah. And I kind of wish there was more of it because I would totally drink it, but yeah, not yet. Maybe. Yeah, I agree. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find more information about Mark on his website, franklinliquors.com, and more information about myself at vinitaswineworks.com. 
And as always, you can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Welcome back to The Wonderful World of Wine. Mark really wants to talk about this next article about one of my favorite styles of wine. And every once in a while, we come back to champagne and we talk about the different styles, different, you know, what's going on with the vintage. And then there are all these myths that are sort of surrounding champagne. So we were talking before the break, Mark, that you learned some new things by reading this article. And I'm, I'm very curious about which champagne or myths you didn't know about. Well, usually, you know, our listeners know you're the bubbly queen. And when we talk or even mention any articles on sparkling, you get all excited and you're kind of, you know, not excited to talk about this today. And I was shocked. I was really shocked. <laughs> I feel because, like we've you know done it, it over is. and over and no, over be again. <laughs> it's because you know it all this stuff oh, and you don't think okay. myself or the listeners are interested anymore in some of this stuff. So I guess we need to totally talk about my favorite style of wine. I just don't yeah. want to. I don't well, want to bore our listeners. I think there were some interesting things they brought up. It's glassofbubbly.com and they're talking champagne myths. They didn't say anything about sparkling. They, they want to focus on champagne myths. And the first one was the silver teaspoon myth. Now, I honestly, Kim, never heard of this, that putting a silver teaspoon in your bubbly keeps the fizz. So can you explain if you've ever done this or tested that it works? No, because it sounds ridiculous. <laughs> so Honestly. something about the silver keeps the bubbles flowing constantly. Who the heck has sil silver teaspoons that they're going to put in there? I was just going to say, isn't it kind of like no one even I think it would damage anymore, your right? good silver. Like, do you really want to put your good silver? I mean, would, if you even have good silver, would, you know, that you maybe you inherited from your grandmother or something. I, I had I heard know. this. I had heard this one, but I honest to God had never heard of anybody actually trying it because it really made no sense. Why? Are you supposed to keep it in or take it out when you sip? Like, So you're supposed it... to put a, a silver spoon in the top of your bottle if you store it overnight and then miraculously the bubbles will not dissipate. And oh. yeah, it says a bottle that's half or more full will keep it sparkle longer. So you Okay. I, yeah. See, but you, you know, I think it's very unusual thing I, to try. I've seen things where this gadget you put in like pennies to take away certain things in wines and but I've never heard of this, the teaspoon mm -hmm. thing. So I thought it was interesting. We'll I think the best to thing to do is cap it and then put it in the refrigerator. Yeah. Well, that works too. <laughs> Next, Kim, was the coupe. And mm. we've always heard the story about how the champagne coupe was designed or the theory, how it came up. And the myth was that it's shaped after Marie Antoinette, right? Her, her, we'll say, we can say it, right? Her breast. It was, it was shaped after her breast. But this article mentioned it was her left breast. And I never heard <laughs> that before, right? It was specifically shaped after her left breast. Can you so, hear me rolling my eyes over here? <laughs> no, I mean, you you heard the story, right? The myth I have. That, so, you know, but that this was adding a little, another layer to it. And we've always talked why shouldn't use that type of glass. In, in Kim's case, it's just that there's not enough volume in it, right, Kim? It's too small. But that, <laughs> that is true that the depth of a That's coupe right. I like just, a really big glass of champagne. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, in theory, the depth, of a coupe is just not good enough to get you the the bubbles, right? It doesn't flow well. Yeah, you get a big, you know, you get a big hit of bubbles for the first five minutes that you have it in your glass. And maybe that's the reason why it is so small is because you're supposed to drink it really fast because after five minutes, all of your bubbles are gone. So could be that those two things go together, the shape of it and 
you know, you can only fit like three ounces of champagne in a coupe because a lot of them are fairly small. There are some that are that are larger, but a lot of the ones that are out there and I have a few um, that were more like promotional things or ones that went with, you know, my mother's crystal set from however many decades ago that she got when she got married, but they're, they're fairly small. And I loved, I like to use them for cocktails where you only have, you know, two or three ounces of beverage, but for bubbles, you leave that in there for any amount of time. There's so much surface area that all of your bubbles are going to disappear fairly quickly. But if that's only five or six sips, then, you know, maybe, maybe the shape works because you're not, it's not going to be in your glass that long. And they use that as a kind of a good point of the coupe is that you don't drink as much because it's a smaller glass. So, I mean, there's a good side to mm-hmm. not that's being as big. And so, maybe that's one of the things about champagne flutes too. You know, a flute only holds like four ounces. Right. So fairly small. But it dissipates the bubbles a little better because yeah. it's a little taller. So maybe you should ask now your mom, she has the coupe. She might have that silver teaspoon <laughs> for you to test. <laughs> yeah, I'll grab my mom's out. silver. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Okay. Maybe I need to try it. Yeah. We'll follow up on that. So the other myths they mentioned was more bubbles. Does it equal better quality of the champagne? And then uh, related to that, they said a big bubbles bad. So tell us, Kim, more bubbles, big bubbles, anything about the quality or is it just something about the glass being dirty? So it's a couple of different things. So on the one hand, the bubbles in a glass of champagne need something to sort of kick off of. So if you have a perfectly clean, no scratches or anything on the inside glass, you're actually going to see fewer bubbles because there's going to be less released. But what that means is that those bubbles are still remaining in solution in the drink. So when you sip it, you're going to feel the bubbles and you're going to taste the bubbles, but you're not necessarily going to see them because they're not going to be released from the wine until they are in your mouth. So that's kind of a nice thing about having a good glass. And we we learned this with bartending for beer glasses, that you want beer glasses to be super duper clean on the inside so that they'll retain that bubble and they, the drinker will get that nice carbonation when they take a sip and then it doesn't go too flat too quickly. So that's one of the things about having a good clean glass that you're using. And that if you don't see a lot of bubbles, it doesn't mean that they're not in the Campaign. What the difference is, is when you see little bubbles versus big bubbles. And I feel like the finer the bubble, the smaller the bubble, the more sort of creamy and f- fluffy, I guess could be the word, you feel that what we call the, the mousse in your mouth when you're taking a sip of it, as opposed to a, a sparkling wine that has bigger bubbles. So it just feels more like you're, you're taking a sip of soda as opposed to a good sparkling wine. So explain this to me, Kim. If a glass is dirty, it lowers the bubbles, correct? No, it, it, it makes more? more bubbles because, okay. because yeah, because- As well the, as scratches in the glass. Scratches too, yeah. So why wouldn't a bartender want to have a little scratch or not keep them totally clean so they can show more bubbles? Well, yeah. I mean, look, it, it's very visually appealing to see all the bubbles coming out of the glass, but then it's going to go flatter quicker. Uh, okay. See? So I think now, it's more we... more depending on what the, I guess, what the customer is looking for. But if you are more concerned with what it looks like, then, ooh, it looks really flashy because look at all those bubbles. And then, yeah. you know, maybe it's less important to you that you feel the bubbles that much in your mouth. In the traditional flute, say we're using a traditional flute and you mm-hmm. pour the champagne, the bubbles should stream 
right from the center of the flute, correct? Right. Up. So if yep. there's anything wrong, dirty, or if the bubbles are clinging to the side of a glass, it's usually clinging to the dirt. Am it, I correct? Yeah. Dirt or scratches or, I mean, not dirt, dirt, but, you know, some, some yeah, residual. Some in residual there. left. Yeah. Could be soap left in there. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm glad we clarified that. I always kind of freak out when I look at my wine glass like that in a restaurant, you know, so. And, and you don't get any bubbles and you think it's flat? Well, flat or if I'm seeing them coming from weird directions, like, oh, okay. what, is, what is it hitting like, in there? Why is and this happening? It? Yeah. <laughs> just, just, me. just me. Now I know, I know the myths. So you, we're all set now. Also, they mentioned as another champagne myth, Kim, was beautiful necks uh, does not mean it's a beautiful wine. And we're talking about like the foil treatment, basically the package. Uh, lately, a lot of sparkling producers, they make different things to kind of think, make you think that it's better quality or something like that. Mm-hmm. So what's your uh, opinion on beautiful necks on ch- champagne? You know, I think this kind of it goes hand in hand with the whole thing of people think that a, a heavier bottle of wine is therefore a more expensive bottle of wine and a, um, a better quality bottle of wine. Champagne is one of the most marketed styles of wines out there. And I think that this is part of that marketing program, if you will. You know, let's make our wine look either different from another one or unique or special in some way. Give it something different for people to talk about. So, I mean, there's kind of no rhyme or reason about why the foil collar has to look the way that it does. The The cage is very important because it, it locks on there and it, it keeps the cork in and you don't want an accident. But the foil is more just for the aesthetics. And so that I mean, this article mentions that, you know, sometimes they don't want you to see how high the fill is because there can be some variability because of um, how they have to disgorge the uh, the yeast sediment from the wine before it gets corked and put on the market. Yeah, that's, that's the interesting point because we mentioned this with normal still wines, like a screw cap, they have the foil, but when you open it, it's filled right to the top and you can't see that airspace because the foil covers it. So sparkling, it makes sense that when they disgorge it, they might not fill, refill as high yeah. on all of them. So you would see a variability in the levels. So it makes sense that they would cover it with the yeah. foil. And I, and I can get that, you know, because if you line up four of the same wine, you want to feel like you're getting your money's worth, right? And if you see one that is a lower fill or one that's a higher fill, you know, you're sort of starting to question like, oh, well, you know, what's wrong here? Why, why aren't they all they, why aren't they all exactly the same? So I, I get that from a consumer point and then why the winemakers would want to make it so that they look much more uniform. Yeah. And lately a lot of sustainable producers are getting away from the foil altogether. And I think people, when they look at it, they're thinking that it was a packaging error. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't see that foil top. They just see the cork exposed and they get, I think they kind of get freaked out about huh. it, but it's good for the environment, I guess. Less uh, to throw th- away. Yeah. You don't have to cut it off. Saves a step. A lot quicker to open up. Another myth came on champagne about there are more bubbles in a champagne than stars in the sky. And I Googled this. <laughs> Did you? you know? Well, you know, there's a famous quote. Was it was it Don Perignon that said he saw stars? Yeah, I think that was supposed to be Don First Perignon. experience with sparkling wine. So, Whether he actually said it or not, that's the myth. So they estimate there's 50 to 250 million bubbles in every bottle of champagne. But 
stars. I had to Google this, Cam. There's about 10 billion trillion stars. That's a so big number. So more stars in the sky than bubbles in a yeah. bottle of champagne. So the myth of there's more bubbles in champagne. See, did you know that one? I didn't. See, now you didn't want to talk See? about this article. You got me. You, you're yeah. <laughs> going to mention that at the next party, I know, right? I will. It's, it's good to have uh, wine small talk available. There you go. <laughs> and our listeners just learned something new too, because I did, That's right. right? And the last myth they say, Kim, the English are the true inventors of champagne. And we talked about, you know, the whole, we mentioned our buddy, Don Perignon, and he's always uh, considered the, the uh, actual inventor of it, which we know is not true. But now they're saying, well, the English, they mentioned, uh, what was the gentleman, Christopher Merritt in yes. the 17th century had something to do with experimenting with sparkling wine. But the English, to me, Kim, were always famous for inventing a thicker glass to help packaging of champagne. Right. And, and I, I think to credit the English with, quote unquote, inventing sparkling champagne, when it seems like it was more that they accidentally discovered that some, not accidentally, accidentally discovered, but when still champagne was being shipped from France to England back in the days before it was technically supposed to have bubbles in it because of the time of year that it was shipped when it was winter and it was cold. They would get to England and then age the bottles for a little bit longer. And some of them would develop bubbles and some of them would not develop bubbles. And they kind of kind of couldn't figure out why. So I don't necessarily know if you can say, well, the English were the ones who invented the sparkling when it just happened to be that that was where the wines were being opened and were being consumed when they had the bubbles in them. Or maybe it's just that they developed. I think part of it is that the French kept working to keep the bubbles from happening in the bottles, whereas the English got it, got them and had they had the bubbles in them and they were like, "Ooh, we like this. Let's keep this up. So I think it was more of a learning to appreciate the um, the happy accident that is sparkling champagne. What was the story? I was trying to think about why the English were experimenting with the thicker glass. It's something to do with what shipbuilding, or do you? Oh, I don't remember. Off on that, I, I was trying I, to think of that. I don't. Story. I don't know that they were trying to make thicker glass, or that they realized that when they went from using wood to using coal That's to fire. What it was. That's yeah. what it was. So they when they went from using better. coal charcoal to using, to, sorry, from using wood charcoal to using coal yeah. for firing of the the, um, the glass making operations, they discovered that they could make stronger glass and thicker glass. That's what it was. Yeah. They switched the source of the heat. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So those are the champagne myths. I thought we had to say it, Kim. We had to say it because once again, the bubbly queen and, and you found a few things and you're going to get the teaspoon and you're going to test that out for us. That's true. So some things for our listeners to uh, use at their next company party or <laughs> family gathering where you need to have a little bit of a small talk about wine. Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine today. We've been your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Please feel free to leave us your questions and comments. And you can find past episodes on SoundCloud and iTunes. Cheers. Cheers.